Hey everybody, this is Glenn Klingeron, and welcome you back to yet another installment of Murders, Mysteries, and Conspiracies. If you are a returning listener, I want to thank you for that. If this is your first time listening, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. If you don't know who I am, I'm a mystery writer. I have been since about 1993. Currently write the Rolling Justice and NTSB Mystery Series. Created this little podcast about two months ago in an in an effort to educate people, inform people, interact with people about various murders, mysteries, and conspiracies. I try and present you with information, backstory. I'll include all my sources. I include my website and things like that. So if you want to go back behind me and research too, and then come back to me. I would love to hear your feedback. Perhaps I can put it on the show. If you have a differing opinion, hey, I'm fine with that. I have an open mind and everybody should have an open mind. That's how we learn things. Knowledge is power and learning every little bit we can is important for us to understand the world around us. So before I get started today, I want to thank my sponsor, Florida Pickleball Clothing Company. For all your pickleball needs, FloridaPickleballClothingCompany.com. Now today, I, I sat down with a good friend of mine. I had lunch the other week, and, and he gave me a list of things. He said, hey, man, why don't you talk about some of these things? So I went down through the list, and I came up with one that was probably one of the first ones on the list. I'm just going to try and work them down in order because I think that we all need to learn about all different things. And this is the hollow earth theory. Now, if, if you're not familiar with that, it's kind of a conspiracy theory saying that the earth is hollow. There's entrances in the North and South pole and inside the earth is, is a whole nother world. And, um, something to think about. It's kind of weird. You know, do you have any science that backs it up? In 2014 researchers Felt they discovered a vast body of water under the surface of the Earth, about 400 miles below the surface. 2016, satellite imagery picked up what they feel as pyramids in the South Pole. And, and those pyramids, when they looked at them, said will be the largest in the world. So it's not unusual when you look back to the old caveman drawings showing those areas as being inhabitable. Polynesian people believe that the South Pole was like a, a garden of Eden, you know, lush valleys where people lived. Now in 2017, a German uh, geologist did core samples down there, South Pole. And he was surprised to find out that there was 60 different uh, taxa of plant life, I guess, similar to that in Northern Italy. So the climate's a lot different in Northern Italy than it is in Antarctica, but we will see. What's crazy to me is there are 70 active space exploration programs, but there's really not much going on in the North and South Pole. So I wanted to go back and look at somebody who claims that they actually saw this place. They claim they actually entered the center of the earth. So you got to bear with me here. You may never have heard of Richard E. Byrd, but you probably know him by his military designation, Admiral Byrd. He, over the early 1900s, he led expeditions 
to the North and South Pole. He was a very accomplished naval aviator and expedition leader. So he was a polar explorer. He organized polar logistics. So he was pretty involved. Let's let's learn a little bit more about him. Um, we learned about him in school, maybe not a lot, you know, but you can learn a little bit more about Admiral Byrd. He was born in Winchester, Virginia, October 25th, 1888. And he, he died in 1957 at the age of 68. Now, he is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So if you want to see his grave, you can do that there. He was in the U.S. Navy. Commissioned his rank is when he left was a rear admiral, and he was active between 1912 to 1927, and then again 1940 to 1947. So, quite a distinguished career. He started at Virginia Military Institute, where he went for two years, transferred to University of Virginia, and then ended up at the U.S. Naval Academy. Graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1912. And he was commissioned an ensign in the U.S. Navy, and his first assignment was on the USS Wyoming battleship in the Caribbean Sea. Now, he served there with distinction for about four years until 1916 when he ended up breaking his ankle. And he broke it so severely that they put him on uh, medical retirement and three-quarter pay, and then put him uh, in December of 1916. He was assigned to be the inspector and instructor at the Rhode Island Naval Militia in Providence, Rhode Island, where he ended up doing quite a few good things there, improving efficiency and things like that. As I mentioned, he was quite the naval aviator. He had served in World War I and World War II. He won the Medal of Honor, the Navy Cross, Distinguished Service Medal, Legion of Merit, Distinguished Flying Cross, Congressional Gold Medal, and he had his wife was Marie Donaldson. He was married to for a number of years. So he wasn't a, a crackpot or anything. He wasn't anybody that you would think was was crazy. But uh, you'll find out later he came up with some pretty pretty interesting ideas. He shortly after 1916, 1917, the war started, World War One, and he had to oversee the mobilization of the Rhode Island Naval um, Militia to be called up. Then he was recalled to active duty and was assigned to the Office of Naval Operations. Of course, it was a desk job, and he organized the Navy Department Commission on Training. So during that time, 1917, they sent him to become a naval aviator. So he did that, Pensacola, Florida. He qualified as a naval aviator, which is no small task. You got to be pretty good to do that. He is number 608, so there's probably only, what, 607 guys ahead of him. 1918, he war ended and he got bored. He didn't know what to do. So he got involved in some Atlantic crossing stuff. Now, at that time, you have to understand you had the Navy involved in all kinds of things and you had the dirigible program. You have dirigibles and blimps. Now, when I was at Florida Institute of Technology, I had the um, had to sit through a class on lighter than air vehicles. So I learned more about those things than I really wanted to know. But a dirigible has a frame to it, kind of like the Hindenburg, and a blimp does not. They're, they don't have any type of inner workings. They're just a blimp. They're filled with helium, and off they go. So he was actually supposed to be on a one of these transatlantic crossings in a dirigible, and he missed his train. And so when he missed his train, that actually saved his life probably because 
That dirigible broke apart midair, killed 44 of the 49 crew members, and he lost several of his friends and some of the people that he worked with over the years. So he was upset about that. And he really wanted to find something. He, he was an explorer. You know, he really wanted to find something to stretch his abilities. So he decides in 1926, he wants to take a flight to the North Pole. So he connects with his a fellow pilot, Floyd Bennett, and they want to fly over the North Pole in a, a Falker trimotor named Josephine Ford after the daughter of Ford Motor Company President Edsel Ford, because Mr. Ford financed this undertaking. So off they went. They left Spitsburg and headed toward uh, the North Pole. 15 hours and 57 minute trip, 13 minutes of which they said they were circling the farthest point of the North Pole. So they return and are greeted with a hero's welcome. Congress passed a special act on December 21st, 1926, promoted both those guys and gave them the Medal of Honor. They were given the Medal of Honor at the White House by President Calvin Coolidge in 1927. It's quite an award, man. That's, that's probably one of the highest awards you can get. But you had another guy out there, Norwegian aviator Bernd Balchen, who didn't believe they did it. He said, look, I can, I can tell how fast that plane's able to go. I don't think you were able to make it to the North Pole, circle it, and come back as you had mentioned. And so he disputed that claim, but you know, Bird still gets credit for it. And that's the way, it, that's the way it goes. So some of the other stuff that he did, he decided to do a transatlantic flight in 1927. So this time he, he hooks up with Floyd Bennett, the guy that went to the North Pole with him. And he drags out the guy that was Burnt Belchin, who was saying he never went to the North Pole, and they all went and flew across the Atlantic. Now, they flew from the U.S., and they hit the coast of France, and they actually crash-landed. They crashed on Normandy Beach, which I think they said it was Gold Beach during Normandy Invasion. It gives you an idea, a reference where they crashed. But, you know, they were showering these guys with, they got some kind of legion of merit or something from the French. They just gave him another medal. So he was getting medals everywhere. He did his first Arctic expedition, uh, 1928 to 1930. It was small, just two ships, three airplanes. He did that, but it kind of got him hooked on the on the expedition thing. He wanted to, he kept going back. He went back several times. He did a second Arctic expedition between 33 and 34. And then later on, several more. But the biggest one, the one that really makes the biggest impact is one that's called Operation High Jump that he undertook. And it's at that point on Operation High Jump that he says he flew into this, this center place. Now, you got to understand, you know, everybody's been fascinated with, the, you, you hear these stories of Journey to the Center of the Earth, the classic Jules Verne story, talks about a civilization that lives inside the earth. Now, modern science just kind of laughs about it, the, the hollow earth theory. But, you know, these guys, you got people that, that claim, like I said, Admiral Byrd claims he was, he was there. Now, on this 
on this flight, he leaves on his his you know, Operation High Jump. He's flying his another trimotor aircraft, and he's logging. He was very good at logging his trips. He would log like every 15 minutes. He'd have a, a log entry. Anything anomaly happens, he would log it. And it was pretty interesting when he said he was flying along, and then pretty soon he lost radar uh, radio contact. He his plane would buffet. And, and then pretty soon he said he couldn't, his controls froze. He started flying over an area of uh, lush green valleys. Um, he dropped to a thousand feet because he saw something he thought was an elephant. And he logged it as he had seen a, a mammoth. And so he got down to, to a thousand feet. And then he said he started seeing the rivers, the valleys. He saw a huge crystal city. Um, and and something locked onto his aircraft, took him down, and landed him. And he said these spacecraft looked like alien ships, had crazy markings on them like swastikas. That's why you'll see these conspiracy theories, you know, Nazis in Antarctica and all those kind of things, Nazi bases and this crazy stuff. But he claims that these these inner beings um, spoke with him. And that they told him that they weren't happy um, with the way the surface beings were handling atomic weapons and that they were going to ruin everything for the people um, everywhere, going to ruin the earth. So he ends up going back with this information. Now, now after that, he's released by these people. They said, we're going to release you, send you back. His planes finds himself flying again, and he's back, goes back to his base goes to the Pentagon with this logbook and this information. And they tell him, look, don't talk about this stuff to anybody. You're not to speak of it. You are not to talk about it. It's it's something that you are going to take to your grave. And the only reason we have all this information now is he kept a secret diary. Um, Admiral Byrd kept a secret diary that his son published in 1996. And during, in that secret diary, he talks about these beings being, you know, being huge, being tall, you know, 10, 12 feet high. Um, talks about the more in detail, the crystal cities and the things that, that have. Now, they claim the name of this place is Ar Agartha. And. You've got other people that say they've seen this. Now, you've got a guy that Carl Unger was a German U-boat commander, uh, claims he spent some time there. He reached the inner earth during an exploration in a submarine after World War II, and he sent a letter to the surface, claims he sent a letter from there. Now, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know whether they postmarked it from there or what, but how they knew it came from there. There's another guy, Billy Faye Woodward, and his sisters believe they were born there. They were born in the inner earth, and they possessed different abilities. Olaf Jensen claims to have journeyed there, and he even wrote a book about it. The Smoky God by Willis George Emerson in 1908 portrays Jensen's journey to the inner earth with his father. They lived there for two years. Said it was Garden of Eden. So you have got some crazy, crazy theories going on out there. Now, whether you, you believe it or not, you have people that are saying that it actually exists and you have Admiral Byrd who says he has seen it. So perhaps your homework assignment will be to go out, 
Look at some of the stuff I include in the notes. Look at these things. Research some other things. Get back to me. Let me know your thoughts. I would love to read them on the air so others can hear them. And tell me if you think this place actually exists. The Hollow Earth Theory and the City of Agartha on Murders, Mysteries, and Conspiracies. I want to thank you for tuning in. Another episode. And please check out MurdersMysteriesConspiracies.com for other episodes. I hope you'll listen to all of them. Give me your feedback. I really welcome that. I enjoy hearing from each and every one of you. And until next time on Murders, Mysteries, and Conspiracies, this is Glenn. See you later. Bye.